Hello, Monetization Nation. Change can be scary and difficult. So we brought in Andy Goldstrom, an expert and leader in helping businesses adapt to change. Welcome back to another episode of Monetization Nation with Andy Goldstrom. In the last episode, we discussed Andy's entrepreneurial journey and lessons he learned about being a good leader, such as why leaders should always speak last. In this episode, we're going to discuss four tectonic shifts Andy sees today and three actions leaders need to take to more effectively adapt to change, such as tectonic shifts. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. What do you think is the biggest tectonic shift that is affecting businesses today? So there um, are three shifts and it's not, um, you know, like um, we had talked a little bit about a little earlier before we even got on this podcast about a couple of examples. Um, but for me, it's not a specific product or service, it's a trend. And so these are things where you have to point your clients in a direction in terms of where are in general goods or services being consumed or will be consumed, because that's where jobs are going to be created. That's where demand's going to be created. That's where people are buying, right? So if you have, whether you have a product or service, these things are going to affect most industries in one way, shape or form. And so the three things are, the first one is demographics. So um, the demographics in the United States um, have, uh, well, and globally too, but especially in the United States, um, there are two rats going through a snake. And they are the baby boomers who are, you know, either retired or getting closer to retirement. And the millennials who are going to make up more than a quarter of the workforce within a year or two. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that older people who are retiring or getting closer to retirement um, need more financial services, financial products and services, financial planning. They need more health care. They need more retirement homes. They need better food options. Uh, they need more knee replacements. All of those things relating to um, uh, a larger portion of the population getting older and how they're being served um, is a big part of it. For the millennials, it's it's just the opposite. It's not the opposite, but it's at the other end of the spectrum in that pre-COVID and even coming back now, they wanted to live closer into the cities. They, um, you know, they um, care about brands that have an impact. They want more... Uh, convenience and accessibility to things, uh, their transportation needs are different. And so being able to cater to them um, is very different than being able to cater to um, someone who's about to retire. And so um, that's trend number one. So if you can point your, point your arrow at either of those things, uh, chances are you'll have some opportunity. Second thing is um, technology. You know, um, you know, 20 years ago, um, you could invest in a robust SaaS product 
and between the cost of the hardware and the cost of the software to roll something like that out nationally at minimum would cost about a hundred thousand dollars. But nowadays it probably costs less than a 10th of that. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know how to run a business. So the changes in technology have allowed new businesses to, to, to pop up because uh, the barriers to entry are, are lower, but also it's allowing all these businesses to scale. And we talked about the, you know, the information, different ways to deliver information. And the thing that I like to quote or talk about is, is um, you can actually for, you can incorporate online for a few hundred bucks nowadays. You can raise money from crowdsourcing sites such as Kickstarter. You can hire programmers from Upwork. You can rent computer processing power from Amazon. You can find manufacturers on Alibaba. You can arrange payments via Square, and then you're conquering the world. <laughs> but you know that. But, so you know there are a lot of people who are using that kind of methodology to to apply technology um, because the competency and the cost has gone up and the cost has gone down. And the last trend is regulation. You know, with more technology become there's more ability to, to uh, um, create fraud or create problems. And you've seen this with all these scammers and, and all this stuff that, that goes on. And so regulation from cybersecurity to, um, to monitoring technology is gonna change quite a bit. And if you're a lawyer or somebody who um, needs to, who works in the compliance field or just needs to understand what the, where the, where the, guardrails are, it's really important. And I always think like, you know, we could be having a beer in 10 years where there are a bunch of self-driving electric cars out there and somebody gets into an accident. How are the, how are the courts going to view who's culpable, right? Cause you don't have a driver out there is actually, who actually caused the accident. It's a self-driving car where there's, there's no precedent for that yet. Right. So so those regulatory things are going to remain around whether, regardless of whether we have a Republican, uh, you know, more conservative or more progressive government in place. So those are three shifts or trends that I look for. There's one more that I think would fit really well in that, and it's, it's recurring revenue. A lot of people are talking about that today, and that's one of the real big tectonic shifts. Um, and I'm wondering how you feel that fits into your business fitness, because it seems like you know, a normal business might sell at three to five times EBITDA, but if you've got a strong recurring revenue stream that's built into it, and you're not built on one-time sales, you've got recurring profits, um, it seems like you can radically increase not just what you're able to sell the business for, but what you're able to, um, the fitness of that business today, right? I'm going to sleep a lot better as a CEO if I have recurring revenue coming in, I'm not just having to make one-time sales. Do you feel that recurring revenue has a place in your business fitness model? Oh, it absolutely does. I mean, it's part of my whole history. I mean, why, why USI sold for a higher multiple than our competition? We had long-term contracts three to yeah. five years with big clients where we did all of their work. We weren't just focusing on one-off real estate transactions, right? Yeah. Why have technology companies, why do they have such high multiples? Two reasons. One, it's really scalable. You can reach... It to, it to anybody who has a computer practically. But the other reason is they get subscriptions. The revenue amount that you can count on, which allows you to invest more in your niche, which allows you to 
you know, determine where you're going to make your investments and how you're going to grow business and what your company is going to be worth is so much higher when you have, when you have, um, recurring revenues. There's, you know, there's very little doubt about it, that it's far more valuable. So we, we've talked a little bit about tectonic shifts and you talk about how leaders need to adapt to change. Um, how do leaders need to adapt to those tectonic shift changes? Sure. Well, the big cliche or the big thing that people talk about nowadays is that term new normal. Yes. You know, and you can interpret it however you want. What I did was, you know, I've got my own thought leadership. Um, but when it came to trying to reinvent the wheel, I try to, you know, I, I try and learn from others. And McKinsey put out a great study last year that talked about what the new normal was. And I, I agree and believe in it. And, and so there were five elements to it. Um, and, and I'll explain what the five are, and then I'll explain what I think leaders need to do as a result. The first one is uncertainty is the new normal. So, um, you know, things can change on, on, the, uh, on, you know, on a dime, um, a lot faster. Um, and so the speed of information and collaboration will drive future performance. Second one is, uh, adapting. So the winners are gonna be those who can adapt the fastest. So this includes innovating, making bold moves and reallocating resources where necessary. The third is uh, envisioning new opportunities. So leaders need to envision new opportunities and ways of working. We talked a little bit about that already. Uh, the fourth one, which is kind of interesting, um, I think a lot of us have seen how things like Zoom and, and uh, WebEx and other things have been implemented and used far more effectively, Microsoft Teams, other, other Slack, other things. So leveraging talent has changed as geography is less of a constraint given remote work. Yes. Right. And the last thing is, you know, there, there's a lot of cost pressures out there. So companies need to continue to operate more efficiently to, to address those cost pressures. And so, that's kind of what the new normal, if you wanted to, you know, if you, uh, if you're asking me, well, what do leaders need to do to adapt to this change? I think that's some of what you were asking. Um, it's three things. It's, it's changing your mindset <laughs> of the way you lead because people are used to leading in the same way five years ago that they lead now. It doesn't work the same. Uh, and then you have, and, and, and then you have to prepare scientifically as opposed to, um, um, based upon your gut instinct, and then you actually have to execute. And so I'll talk about changing your mindset first. And there are four different areas that are kind of biases that a lot of leaders have in terms of wanting to act. So the first thing is called the quantification bias. So it's, um, it's not being able to fully quantify what the opportunity is. So if you see an opportunity, and it's not 100% quantified, so that the risk is zero, you might not act on it. So it's a quantification bias that could be getting in your way. The second thing is an adrenaline bias. So that's, you know, I'm fighting fires all day. I can't, I can't get out of the weeds and there's not enough time for me to actually focus on being able to make my business fit. Um, the third thing is a sophistication bias. So it's, you know, if I, 
spend more time with my existing customers to find out their changing pain points and 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 offer them an, a value-added service or product. That's going to take some time and investment. Hopefully, it's got a very high ROI that you can do. But if a lot of leaders, um, if they don't view it as a meaningful advantage to their business long-term and they're focused on what they can do today, it could get in their way. And the last thing is on opportunity bias. So um, they, they choose opportunities based upon what somebody tells them, you know, the shiny object, you know, what I call gut instinct or conjecture as opposed to actually uh, opportunities that really lead to business fitness. And so those are things that we're, you know, a mindset, a mind, a mind shift uh, change can help um, leaders move forward. And when they're preparing, what they need to do is do their homework. And, you know, there, there are a lot of ways to do your homework. The best way to do your homework is to talk to your existing customers. <laughs> Say if, you know, I'm, I'm having to adapt my business or I want to expand my business. You've been a great client. You know, uh, how, are, how are things changing in your world or we're thinking about rolling this kind of thing out? What do you, you know, what's your feedback on it? There's, you know, that's the best way for new and prospective customers. There are also, you know, if you're part of an industry trade group where there are a lot of sources on the internet paid for or not paid for, where you can actually do research, it's called secondary research as opposed to primary research to understand, um, you know, the direction that, that, that and, and the mindset that companies have for you to be able to prepare, um, you know, um, and then the last one is just being able to act, you know, you, you have to be able to pull the trigger. You have to know, you know, when to, when to say, when to, when to move forward, um, when to manage the risk appropriately, how to measure it and how to, you know, how to say no, or how to, you know, pull the trick, pull the plug on something that's just not working rather than continue to, 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 uh, fortify it. In your book, you talk about launch profitability. Um, would you address that a little bit for the, for our audience? So launching profitably is, 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 um, you know, there, there are a lot of people who uh, have a great idea. Um, sometimes they've identified a problem as opposed to just a solution. So they know there's some demand for it, but they don't know how to get traction and resources are finite, you know? Um, so um, if they've identified the right problem, um, and they've targeted the right customer, doing some customer segmentation and doing some of the market research, the primary and secondary research we talked about, then a lot of it has to do with gaining traction. And from a digital standpoint, because uh, you have a, we have a digital marketing team here, there's, there's um, really an interesting um, way to look at that. And that is... Um, so when you're trying to gain traction, one of the things that's, there, there are five areas that are really important, actually six. And I won't get into every detail because there are subsets, sub steps. Um, it's in my book, Grow Like a Pro, but it's about sales process mission critical components. And so the first one is making sure you define the ideal client, making sure that you have the right criteria and characteristics, you're solving the right problem, you have a unique advantage to solve those problems and that you have the right market size. If you're, you know, if you're, um, 
selling a clothing product and your market size is all the clothing that any everybody wears and it's a $500 billion market, you're probably not going to um, create a lot of traction in that market because it's too big and there's too much competition and you're not specific enough. So it's defining that ideal client. Then it's identifying who that ideal client is. Where do they hang out? You know, what tools do they use like LinkedIn? Where can you find referrals and partners? What trade organizations are they involved in? Uh, and, and identifying where that client is. Then you have to, once you have those two things, you have to develop your messaging. So what is your unique value proposition? What accomplishments and case studies you have? do you have? What certifications and recognitions do you have? How does your online presence speak to all of that? So it's developing how you approach the market and then you got to market yourself. So it's what events, publications, speaking engagements, and social media activities allow you to reach your market. And then the last two parts are about creating your offer. So it's how do you position yourself so that your offer can get to clients and it immediately they'll understand the ROI. And some people have a discovery offer. So it gives people an opportunity to, you know, to taste the treat before they have to eat, you know, before they eat, order the whole scoop of ice cream. Um, and some people, um, it allows you to get a wedge or to get in, or there are other options for fuller project engagement that you define. And then the last part is it's a circular thing. So you don't gain traction and then stop. You have to continue to track your progress in your sales process and your CRM implementation and the way that you manage the whole sales process. So the the people who are able to look at those different elements are, are the ones who do best. And in my, you know, uh, in the, you know, in the firms that I've owned or sold or worked with, um, those were all really key elements is just knowing who your audience was, knowing what their pain points were, marketing directly to them. And, and I think the only other thing that we did to help manage the risk is quite often rather than just putting a flag somewhere you know, we would grow with our clients' needs because we were so in tune with our clients and had developed such a trust that they would say, you know what, we, we, want, we want to open a, uh, you know, we, we'd have a couple of clients that, you know, wanted to, wanted to expand onto the West Coast or wanted a different service. And so we said, okay, there's enough opportunity here. We're going we're gonna to invest in some resources and some things there to help serve you but then we were getting paid to actually grow as opposed to grow and hoping to get paid. Right. And, and that helps you get to monetization as quickly as possible. And it radically reduces your, your launch. So often businesses start and they run out of runway where they, they can't get lift off because they haven't gotten to profitability fast. I, I had somebody ask me today, I was on a phone call with him today and he said, what's more important having seed money or a leadership team? a good leadership team. And my response to him was neither. <laughs> you need to have cash and customers. Yeah. And you need to yeah. get to profitability and sustain. And you need to get, yeah, you need to get the first dollar in and figure out how to, how to generate profitability within a reasonable period of time, like a year or, 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 or two. It doesn't need to be right away. You just need something that, um, has traction that'll get you there and a good story along with it. So, you know, 
obviously having a good leadership team is a lot is what is going to allow you to sustain your business and having good leaders is important. Having the right amount of money is important, but if you don't have customers, it doesn't really matter. Okay. In your book, you also talk about developing the right partnerships. You want to share a little bit of your advice around that? Yeah. Um, you know, why am I on this podcast? Because um, you invited me, <laughs> but it was because I, uh, I had some information that I thought I would like to share that could benefit your audience. And in turn, it's leveraging the audience that you have to give me more reach, right? Yeah. So um, um, if, you know, there are only so many, even, even using social media, there's so many ways that people absorb information, gather information, um, there are only so many doors you can knock on as an individual or even a small team. And so being able to have the right partnerships that complement where one somebody complements, you know, uh, one another's offering or, or product or service uh, is really important. And so, but here's where the problem is and why I wanted to talk about it is there are a lot of people who think that that's going to become their sales force. You know, if I have a partnership, if I'm selling medical products and I have this medical product and there's a medical products company that wants me to be part of their arsenal so they can sell it, you know, then I don't need to sell anymore. I can just work on raising more money or R&D or something like that. And that never works. Um, you have to be the chief salesperson or, or, you know, one of your senior, you know, one of the senior equity partners on your team has, somebody's got to be the, the, the tip of the spear relating to sales. Uh, if not, it, if not, it just doesn't work. And so, um, so you need to be able to focus in that way. On the show, we talk a lot about building a skyscraper on land you own. And, and you just gave a great example of building a skyscraper on leased land. If, if you take your product and you hand it over to someone else to sell, you're putting your destiny in, in someone else's control, right? Even if you're using that partnership, you still have to retain the, the sales vehicle, right? Build the sales vehicle on something that, that you control as well. So what I've seen is, you know, having partnerships is good, but rather than just having a handshake over dinner or a one-page contract saying we're going to be in a partnership, it needs to have some teeth. Yeah. So part of it is, are there minimums in terms of what needs to be sold? How are our, how are the people in the, from, how are people on both sides going to get incentivized um, so that they, you know, will take it seriously? How are customers going to get rewarded and how are these people going to be trained? If, you know, if, if, if all of those things happen, your chances of succeeding are much higher and you're, you know, having, having partnerships and joint ventures are really good things when they're done well. Thank you so much, Andy, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, Andy encourages us to leverage at least four tectonic shifts that are occurring today. Demographics, technology, regulation, and recurring revenue. Number two, a good leader needs to be able to adapt to change as we live in a world where uncertainty is the new normal. In order to adapt to change, a leader must have a changing mindset. We must recognize that change is often a good thing. 
Number four, adapting to change requires preparation and research. Number five, ultimately, adapting to change comes down to a final decision. Will the change be beneficial? Will it be worth it? A leader must be able to execute the final decision. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Andy, you can connect with him on his LinkedIn profile. If you want to learn more about his company, Midcourse Advisors, you can visit his website at midcourseadvisors.com. And we've included links to both of those websites in the blog post for this episode. Did you like today's episode? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, you can get a free monetization assessment of your business or subscribe to the free monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast or YouTube channel. And number three, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. What are the most difficult changes you have had to make? Were they successes or failures and why? Please join our free Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your efforts to effectively adapt to change. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.